Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Fullest Podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Bostwick. And today's guest is Taylor Kulik, who is a holistic sleep specialist and an occupational therapist. Hi, Taylor. Hi, Nikki. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for so much for taking the time to come on. I'm really, really excited to chat with you about your journey into this work and also ask you many questions. I think that, you know, there's not a lot of information out there for people who are, you know, holistically minded and kind of want like one resource to go to that shares with them, you know, best bed sharing practices and supporting parents just for optimizing sleep. I think specifically for me, I, you know, view myself as someone who's very holistically minded, but when I was pregnant, I had no idea I was going to end up bed sharing. I just always, you know, thought that that was a no, no. So, Mm -hmm. but I love it so much. So I'm really excited to just kind of dive in and this have this episode be a resource for people who are currently pregnant, um, women who are considering having kids, parents who already have children, like, such as myself, who are literally going through so many sleep. Like I, I don't sleep still, so it'll be really good. <laughs> but um, I first just would love to hear how you came into this line of work and care. I know that you are a parent yourself. So I'm assuming that has a lot to do with it, but how did you find yourself becoming a sleep specialist? Yes, absolutely. So I am an occupational therapist. That's my background. And when I became a mom almost five years ago, my daughter is almost five. I read all of like the sleep, the mommy sleep blogs. I heard about the sleep training books. Everybody around me, you know, would ask about sleep and how's your daughter sleeping? And is she sleeping through the night? And, you know, what was actually happening was that my daughter was not sleeping well at all. And I felt a lot of shame in that because when people are constantly asking you about how your baby, your very little baby is sleeping, as if that is the most important thing in the world, it almost creates this idea and belief that how they are sleeping is an indicator of how you are as a parent or whether your baby is a good baby or a bad baby, right? That's the other question is, is are they a good baby? Well, of course they are. What's the alternative? But anyway, so totally. she had a lot, yeah, she had a lot of sleep issues um, or so I thought. And I, after a couple of, the first couple of months weren't actually too crazy and too bad with her, um, which is very common that newborns might sleep a little bit better than older babies. But once she turns about four or five months, sleep really went downhill. And at that this point, I could not get her to sleep in her crib um, at all at night. And so I would bring her into bed with me, breastfeed her, and she would fall asleep. But then I could not transfer her back to her crib. And I would spend hours at night trying to do this. I wasn't sleeping. My husband wasn't sleeping because we were all in the same room. During the day, nap time was miserable because I thought I had to put her down drowsy but awake. Um, and so I would spend, I remember spending an hour or two at a time trying to get her to fall asleep because she would fall asleep nursing, she would fall asleep rocking, but then that wasn't good enough, right? Because everybody tells us, well, they have to be able to fall asleep on their own. So I would spend hours putting her to sleep only to have her wake up five minutes after I laid her down. And so it was absolutely miserable. Yeah. And we reached a point around when she was six months old that she we were not sleeping at night. She was not sleeping. And my husband begged me to just let her stay in bed with us because he noticed, of course, that that's when she was sleeping. She would fall asleep nursing and we would sleep. And then sometimes I would, you know, doze off too, but I would wake up and have to go rush and put her back in the, in the crib. And so he said, just let her sleep with us. And as a healthcare professional, I had always been told that bed sharing is dangerous and you could harm your baby. And, you know, of course I was going to the, we were going to the pediatrician and every time they asked us, where's baby sleeping? And, you know, bed sharing, bed sharing is just bad, right? That is like what society tells us. And so I said, absolutely not. We can't bed share. And then finally I just said, okay, okay, we'll do it. We'll try it because we are exhausted. And I felt a lot of shame with that, with that beginning of our kind of bed sharing relationship, because I felt like I was failing as a parent basically, right? Um, whenever, when all anybody talks about a sleep and how your ba- how is your baby sleeping independently in their crib, as if that is the ideal and what they are supposed to be doing, when you can't get your baby to do that, you feel like a failure or you feel like there's something wrong with your baby. And so I didn't really tell anybody initially that we were bed sharing, but I began to look into safe bed sharing 
sharing information because actually I think one of my friends told me about some like she bed shared and you know here's this website and so I started to look into it and started to research about biological infant sleep bed sharing all of that I found the work of Professor James McKenna who exclusively researches I think he's retired now but he did exclusively research breastfeeding and bed sharing he calls it breast sleeping and he has so much safety information about bed sharing, so much research about the benefits of bed sharing and how it is the biological norm. And we shouldn't just be vilifying parents who bed share and just vilifying the act of bed sharing itself. And my world was really rocked because at the, up until this point, I had never been told it's actually okay to bed share. And it's actually that a lot of parents are bed sharing, they're just not talking about it. And so I started to tell more people around me in my life that I was bed sharing. And usually I would get, oh, yeah, we bed share sometimes too. Or, oh, yeah, my baby starts in the crib, but then we end up bringing them into the bed at 3 a.m. And then we bed share from there. So I realized that once I was open to admitting to other parents that I bed share, that they were also then open to telling me that they bed share. And so I realized there's just this community of parents who aren't talking about how their babies actually sleep. And a lot of them are feeling really isolated because it feels very shameful and we have to keep it a secret because otherwise we'll be scolded for doing the wrong thing. And we think that it's only our baby who isn't sleeping like the textbook babies sleep. And so anyways, I'm making this a little bit longer than maybe it needs to be, but fast forward a little bit later, I'm still researching biological infant sleep and bed sharing, and I um, come across this amazing woman named Lauren Heffernan, who is a holistic sleep specialist, and she offers a certification course. And so it aligned with my personal values. And I should back up a little bit and just say that I did try to sleep train my daughter before we started bed sharing, just for like five to 10 minutes at a time, maybe once or twice. And then I gave up because I hated every minute of hearing her cry. It completely went against my intuition. And I just knew that I never wanted to sleep train. It just wasn't right for me. And so I found this certification course and I decided to take it because it was all about holistic sleep and really getting to the root cause of if there is a sleep issue, what is causing that? But also the other side of that is just re-educating parents on what is normal because so many parents think that their baby has a sleep issue or a problem and they actually don't. They're just sleeping like normal babies. But because we've been given so much misinformation about sleep, we have no idea what a normal baseline even looks like for a child. And that is kind of where I'm at now. I would say that probably 50 to 75% of what I do is simply educating parents on what biological infant sleep even looks like. And then and the other part of that is helping parents to get to root causes of what's going on and shift patterns. But most parents have very normal babies. And so I think that is always like the foundation is to know and understand what that actually looks like. Wow, that's amazing. I definitely feel like I connect with a lot of that for sure in terms of like my journey. With my son, I ended up just like sleep sharing with him because I had him in the hospital and I ended up like they wanted to put him, you know, next to me in some like plastic bin, basically. And I was yeah. like, what? He's like crying. How's that humane? And I just, you know, I obviously holding him made it so that he was happy. And I slept with him on me for the first two weeks, literally just like on my heart, just because that's what made him happy. And mm -hmm. I my husband would set me up with pillows all around me. And even in the hospital, like I could tell the nurses, they were like, oh, you know, just like don't doze off or whatever. But they knew that uh, like I, there have to be so many moms that do that because you don't want to hear them cry. And then because not because I just don't want to hear them cry, but because it makes me sad because there's no reason why they should be doing that. But anyway, so then when we got home after the first two weeks of literally having him sleep on my chest, because it makes so much sense. Like they just came out of your body. Like, why would you put them away somewhere? Just that didn't feel right for me. And so because my son has a genetic condition, it's called MCAD. He has to, and both my kids do. And so they had to eat every couple hours, every 90 minutes for him, because we went the like regular hospital route that they, you know, scared me into everything. And then when we got a specialist, mm -hmm. I realized that's not the case. But what I did with my son because of that was I literally trained him to wake up every 90 minutes, even when he didn't want to, to eat because I thought he was going to die. And so I would like shake him up, change his diaper, put water over him. Like it was 
horrible Mm -hmm. just on him, like to get his face wet or something to wake him up to like feed him. And so because of that experience, I also like, I just felt more comfortable, I guess, bed sharing because I wanted him next to me and all this, but I'm so grateful for having him next to me. And then at two years, we transitioned him into his own bed and it happened seamlessly just because he had a lot of fun building the bed with my husband and he would sleep in there and I would just go in and night nurse him and then come back. But then once my daughter was born, she's 10 months old, he came back in the bed with us. Like, Mm -hmm. and I was like, oh my God, how am I going to do this? Because I can't have two kids because he kicks. And so it was a really interesting experience for me because I had finally had that freedom of like having our own bed and having our own space in terms of like my husband and I, and when my son wanted to come in, we were always open. Like we're an open door policy, obviously. And for the most part, like when we travel, we all sleep in one bed, like we bed share. So it's just like circumstantial, I guess. But Mm -hmm. I resonate with one of the moms that you mentioned, because so for my daughter, what I've done recently is I transitioned her into my son's room earlier on. So at three months into her crib, but it just naturally happened. I noticed that she like liked sleeping in her space, but then I would I bed share with her still. So I do like half and half and I'm still curious. Like, I mean, so that way she got used to a crib and she sleeps in a crib for napping nap time. And my son never did that. I just had to wear him or like put him in a stroller or something. But it's really interesting because I think basically what you're saying is, you know, there are biological ways that you can have this where it feels right for you and it's okay. And we've been bed sharing since the beginning of time and that's how people have been doing it forever. And so to say that it's bad is crazy, but at the same time, it makes sense when people in our society are like, if they're drugged up or, you know, whatever, they have like no idea of like their body awareness. And they're obviously like, there's certain reasons why they're saying that, but it's like from, that's like a very small percentage, I would say, but obviously, you know, more than I do, but I'm curious if, I guess I want to start by asking you, like, like you said, there's so much shame around it. So I still, even though I love what I'm doing, I still in the back of my mind, I'm like, should I make a decision? Like, should I stick to trying to transfer her back to the crib? Or is it okay that I'm leaving her in the bed? And it's like, why do I even feel that? Um, you know, that like I'm doing something wrong or that I should ask a specialist. Like, I think it's helpful to have a guide and someone to help you tap back into that intuition and what's right for you and your baby. But I always wonder like, why is it that I'm feeling this way? Is it because of society or is it because I feel like maybe it's better for my daughter? I mean, I think it's a little bit of both, most likely. And, you know, just speaking from my personal experience and also just the experience of interacting with and working with hundreds and hundreds of families um, who are struggling with sleep or maybe they're co-sleeping and they just feel really isolated. When society tells us something, you know, I say this sometimes, and I, I think that the term gaslighting is used too much in our culture. But this is a scenario where it actually is gaslighting from like society and the medical system at large. And that is telling parents that they are failing their kids if they don't sleep train. Because we they are convincing us with these propaganda fear-based messages that if you don't do X, Y, and Z, if you don't teach your baby to sleep right now, if you don't um, stop responding to them. If you don't teach them to self-soothe, if you don't get them into your bed, then X, Y, and Z is going to happen down the road. They will never sleep. They'll have behavioral problems. They'll be in your bed forever. Whatever it, whatever it is that they're saying, they are fear-based messages. And none of them, I've looked into a lot of these. I've looked at the research. I understand um, I understand biological sleep. I understand relationship and attachment and trauma and brain development. And none of them are rooted in reality. None of them. And so when you have so many people, and it's coming from everywhere because it's been going on for quite a while now, it's coming from pediatricians, it's coming from your parents, it's coming from your aunts, it's coming from your friends, it's coming from social media, it's coming from TV shows. So I was I was watching um, a show the other night, and it was about part of the show was sleep training, cry it out, sleep training, as if this is just the 
the rite of passage that parents and babies go through. And so when you're getting those messages from every angle, who wouldn't doubt themselves if they're choosing a different path? Who wouldn't think, oh, am I making the right decision? Am I going to ruin my child? It is gaslighting. And so that is why parents are are doubting themselves because they're trying to follow their intuition and do what feels right and parent from their heart. But society and doctors and friends and well-meaning people are telling them that they're doing the wrong thing and, you know, oh, watch out in case this happens in the future. And again, none of it is really rooted in reality, but it makes sense that we would have shame um, surrounding those sleep choices and it makes sense that we would doubt ourselves as well. And then on the flip side of that, we also as parents, I think most of us do really want the best for our children and we really want to make sure that we are making the right decisions that will set them up for future success. Um, and of course, when people are telling us that we need to be teaching our kids something and we're not, we're going we're gonna to doubt that as well. And we're going to wonder whether we're making the right decision. Interrupting this podcast to tell you about Hillary Pearlson, Akashic Records reader, intuitive guide, and founder of The Dreamery, who is sharing a limited time offer to join the Akashic portal as a founding member for the fullest community. For those new to the Akashic Records, you can think of them as an energetic library or archive filled with everything that every soul has ever thought, said, and done over the course of its existence, from past lives to present life and all future possibilities. The Akashic Portal is your comprehensive guide to co-creating with the Akashic Records, part course, part community. This is the grounded foundation and support you need to enter openly into the Akashic records and create the kind of connection, clarity, and experience you've been looking for. Every step of the portal pathway is intentionally designed to prepare you and guide you into the limitless miracles and possibilities that exist in your everyday life. Join now to become a founding member and receive 50% off the Akashic portal with code THEFULLEST. Learn more at thedreamery.com forward slash portal. That's the D-R-E-A-M-E-R-I-E dot com forward slash portal code THEFULLEST for 50% off. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel is we're like designed to be a specific way. And I'm sure you and I are on the same page about this. And it's like, you know, to follow these rules and to do all these things, because from the get go, they want basically our babies to fall in line. I and I I don't want to like shame people who have sleep trained because I used to be very anti sleep. Like, I mean, I was like, it's the most inhumane thing. And I know mothers who just like have done it because that's what helps them with their mental health because they need a specific amount of sleep and they felt that that was the best for them and their family. And I, you know, I, I think that to each their own for me specifically, like I just couldn't do that and I don't want to do that and it didn't feel right for me. But again, just like what you said, I believe that for me, it's like, I want all the information. I love that you did the research. I am not a specialist. I'm not a holistic sleep specialist. So I want to learn about that from you and take what resonates with me and maybe leave what doesn't, or maybe all of it will resonate, you know, but that is where I'm at. And what most people are at is that it is nice to have that information so you can go on and be empowered to make the best decision for you and to not feel shamed or not feel good enough and not be gaslit by society. And so yeah, I'm very curious to just kind of tap into like what your recommendations are for like optimizing sleep for everyone and having it be, you know, what you share as respectful and responsive and like what those methods are. Yeah. So I want to just also touch on the shaming piece for a bit because I usually give disclaimers when I'm doing interviews and stuff like at the beginning and I forgot to this time. So yeah, I am not shaming anybody. Um, I am not judging anybody who has chosen to sleep train. I made that decision to start sleep training, um, as I said earlier with my first child. And ultimately, my problem is not with the parents who go into sleep training informed knowing that it's the right decision. My problem is with um, the sleep training 
industry and the propaganda machines that are spitting out all of this information, bombarding parents with this information and making parents feel like they have no other choice. And so just like you, I am all about having all the information. If you want to sleep train and if you feel like that's the best decision for your family, then that is fine. But I hope that you have all of the information and understand that you don't have to. And so, yeah, let's talk about optimizing sleep. And you know, this is so tricky to kind of talk about thoroughly because I could talk about it for hours and it really depends on what is going on. So I created this little holistic sleep pyramid that I think is helpful to kind of break down sleep and, and holistic sleep and respectful sleep. And so at that bottom of the pyramid, which would be the foundation, is education. It is parents understanding what normal sleep looks like, what what biological sleep looks like, what patterns are normal and typical for their children, and also knowing what are some red flags that might be um, happening that could possibly mean there's maybe an underlying medical or health condition or something of that nature. So that's kind of that bottom tier, which I think is an important foundational piece. And then you go up to the middle tier. It's like a three-piece foundation that I'm kind of imagining in my head right now. The middle tier is parents are changing the things that they can change in their environment, in their routines, um, in daytime activity, in nutrition, et cetera, that they have some control over to optimize and support their child to sleep. And none of this is actually changing their child. It's not um, not responding to their child. It is just changing things like making sure that we are dimming the lights about two hours before bed and limiting artificial lights as much as we can because we know that light affects the circadian rhythm. It's things like making sure our child has enough activity during the day so that they have gotten their energy out and aren't trying to get their energy out at night. It's things like making sure in the case of babies, that they are feeding appropriately, that we've worked with a lactation consultant if necessary, that we've um, addressed any underlying medical issues such as oral ties, reflux, um, mouth breathing, food sensitivities, things like this. So there are so many things that could be impacting sleep. And there are some things that are more health related that require a lot more work and consulting with maybe some professionals who are skilled in this area to determine what needs to be done to address those. And then there are some really simple things like the environment pieces and making sure that the temperature of the room is just right um, and making sure that maybe we're getting outside in the sun every day and things like this. Also, relationship and connection, especially for babies as well, but also for older children. Does our child feel connected? Are they feeling disconnected? Are we spending enough intentional time with them? Because that is a huge thing for bedtime battles, for toddlers especially. It's just feeling disconnected and wanting more closeness and intentional one-to-one time with a parent. Um, And it's really easy when we're busy. We're present, but we're not always actually like mentally present. And so it's, and that's, it goes for all of us. We can be the best parent in the world and still have moments where we're just really distracted and not there with our children when we have the opportunity to be. So I think it's important for us to keep those things in mind. And then to kind of finalize that found that, um, pyramid. So the top tier of that Uh, that sleep support pyramid is then shifting patterns that no longer work for you. So this is when a parent might come to me and say, I'm still nursing my two-year-old to sleep all night, every night, and it's not working for me anymore. I'm exhausted. I'm not getting sleep. I'm speaking about myself here because I just went through this transition with my Um, (laughs) two-year-old. So that is when we can absolutely respectively and responsively shift patterns, get a new caregiver involved. And these are just examples. It can be me, the same caregiver introducing a different pattern and setting some boundaries around nursing so that I am now supporting my son to sleep in a different way instead of nursing all the time. Or maybe my husband steps in to do it. Or maybe a parent is rocking their child to sleep and their child is 13 months old and they're getting heavy and they're having to rock their child to sleep for a really long time and it's just not working for them anymore. We are now working on introducing new patterns so that they don't have to rock them to sleep, but we're going to introduce a different method of support to sleep. So that's kind of the top tier of that sleep support pattern. And all of this is also... um, kind of rooted again in the relationship, the parent-child or caregiver-child relationship. And I look at that relationship and attachment. um, I look through that lens of relationship and attachment whenever I'm supporting families with sleep. 
Wow. That all makes so much sense. Then why it really is called like a holistic, you know, look at sleeping and supporting a family because it's so true. If my son doesn't, you know, get a lot of activity in during the day and isn't running around, he's less likely to go to bed on time. Mm-hmm. And he just like running around wild at night and in the bath, just like so wild. So it makes so much sense to look at all of that and see why that's happening. And so when someone starts to work with you, I'm sure you start to point these things out and that becomes part of the conversation, but bed sharing makes it so freaking easy. Like, so when you recommend bed sharing and people start to implement that, then what exactly is it that starts to, um, that they need help because I'm like bed sharing solves so many of the problems. It's like you can nurse with them. They're still sleeping. I think for me, getting like my son to sleep is really the biggest um, hurdle for me is and he doesn't nap anymore, but I'd love to implement a nap back into his routine. Um, We can talk about that later. But I think when it comes to parents who bed share, I would assume like the two biggest things would be like wanting to work with someone when they're wanting to transition them out of the bed, maybe, or also wanting to work with someone when they're, you know, not going to nurse them anymore, but they sleep in there or just getting them to bed. Are those kind of like the three big things? Yeah, those are some of the big things. Yeah. So for a bed sharing family, it's going to be something that just isn't working. And this really, I mean, it could be so many things because it really just depends on the child. It could be that they're having split nights because a lot of like sleep challenges that a parent would have with a baby in a crib can also, they can also have it with a baby in bed. So maybe it's bedtime is too late or they're waking up really early in the morning or they have a split night kind of pattern going on where they're awake for one to two hours. A lot of those things are going to be like scheduling things. Like let's look at the sleep total in a 24 hour period when your child's sleeping, when they're napping um, and, and see if we can figure out what your child needs in terms of sleep totals. Because Something that happens often is parents go to these sleep charts and stuff that are like on the sleep trainers' websites and books and things like that. And they think, okay, my child is six months old, so that means they need however many, uh, 14 or 15 hours of total sleep. They need two and a half hours of nap. I'm just making up numbers right now. They need two and a half hours of nap and 12 hours at night. And so parents kind of do this and try to structure sleep in this way, but then they're confused as to why their child is starting to have either a split night or an early rise. And a lot of times that's because these sleep total guidelines are just that. They are averages. They are guidelines. And the true range of what a child really needs in terms of sleep totals is much larger than that. Um, So some six-month-old might only need 12 or 13 hours in a 24-hour period, which means if they're taking two and a half hours worth of naps, you can't expect them to get much more than 10 or 11 hours of sleep at night. And so that's just kind of an example of something that I would help families kind of work through. And it's kind of a puzzle and it's just experimentation because babies, you know, don't come with a manual when they're born saying, I need this many hours of sleep. That's just something we have to kind of figure out and follow their lead and see what's working and what's not. So that's like one example of kind of scheduling difficulties that can present both in the crib and with bed sharing. But yeah, like you said, shifting patterns. So when parents are ready to get their child out of their bed or facilitate some more independent sleep, that is something that we work on a lot. Night weaning, exactly like you said. The other thing that I want to mention here is that um, is red flags. So red flags is are when you know something is happening with sleep that I would say is not usually typical. Sometimes it can be your child's typical. But for the most part, there is an underlying reason causing this. And this is going to be true whether we're talking about a baby in a crib or a baby in a bed with parent. And so um, things that might be impacting sleep in this way um, can be oral ties, can be feeding difficulties, latch difficulties, reflux, food sensitivities, nutrition deficiencies, things like this. I commonly get parents whose babies have undiagnosed oral ties and they are waking up every hour or every 30 minutes, even in bed with the parent. So we know it's not a connection issue. It's not a proximity to parent issue. They are waking every 30 minutes to an hour and they are upset. They are screaming. They are crying. They are uncomfortable. They are hard to console. So this is a big red flag. 
If your baby is very often really difficult to console at night or really difficult to get back to sleep or seems uncomfortable or is waking very, very frequently, like every 30 minutes to an hour and a half and can't really sleep much longer stretches, that is usually a red flag of something something else is going on. And of course, that's when I would kind of, I do questionnaires with parents. I do, it kind of depends on like how parents choose to work with me, um, but asking tons of questions to dig into that and kind of figure out what could be going on and then directing that parent to the appropriate professional to kind of do a more thorough assessment. And so that's a big one. Those red flags are going, if it is a red flag, it will likely present to whether that child is in a crib or whether they are in the bed. Okay. That makes sense. Cause you know, when teething issues come up, it might not be like an oral um, or a tongue tie situation. That's something that needs to be addressed. But when it's like a you know, once in a while situation with like teething, that seems like a similar issue. Yeah. That yeah. And, and that wouldn't be a red flag. And so that's why I always tell parents how long or ask parents, how long has this been happening? And is it happening every night? Is it ha-? So we have to kind of get an idea of when it's happening because it's very normal for children and babies to have periods of time where their sleep is very interrupted, very disrupted, or they might seem uncomfortable if they're sick, if they're teething, but those periods should pass at some point. But these families that have babies with red flags, it's they've never had an easy night. So there's a difference. Yeah, that makes sense. The other thing I wanted to mention is just when you're going through, okay, so what would you say is a typical normal amount of time that you would suggest for parents to allot for a bedtime routine? Like for example, from beginning to end, like right after dinner, when a bedtime routine would start with like a bath, you know, getting ready to get in the bath, brushing your teeth, getting a pajamas on, reading books to the point of falling asleep. Like I think that a lot of times I find myself and my husband having an expectation of it needing to happen faster, like Mm -hmm. getting them to sleep so much faster. I mean, my 10 month old obviously like isn't, it's, it's always with my, um, he's three and a half. It's always with my toddler. The 10 month old is pretty easy to get down. It's pretty quick and easy, but I would say with him, he just has so much energy. So we're constantly like, oh my gosh, like, you know, how is this going to go down tonight? Because he is, just so wanting that. And I really think like when you mentioned that it's really that connection, like my husband's been gone all day. Um, you know, he's a very involved dad and he has such a great relationship with him. So when he's not here all day, then it's like, he wants him to read he, but he just loves books. My son does. So it's like, he wants literally 75 books. He will out read at Like we will read and like make ourselves fall asleep before he's sleeping. So I'm like, how long is this supposed to take? Because I know on some level, I do believe in like, I love Rye parenting. And I know that it's important to set boundaries of like how many books, but that also just hasn't been successful for us. So I'm just curious, like, I think the number one thing for us is what the expectation should be going into it. Because then as a parent, there's so much tension and so much emotion around it internally happening at the same time as wanting to put your child to sleep, that there's this like unnecessary tension that doesn't even need to be there. If you go into it being like, okay, the bedtime routine is like, going to be maybe an hour or 45 minutes. I don't know if that's too long, but I'm just curious like what you would recommend. Yeah. So, okay. So when talking about a bedtime routine, I'm going to, I'm going to break it up. It actually, cause you said like from start to finish, which is the child sleeping, I'm going to break it up into two sections. I'm going to break it up into the actual hands-on activity part of the bedtime routine. And then the second part of that is your child is now actually falling asleep. And then the end would be them going to sleep. So there are no like actual numbers of like your bedtime routine needs to be exactly this long because it's going to depend on the child, their age, your family situation, what what you value in your family, and the child's temperament and personality. Temperament is a huge piece of sleep. And so there are some children who are pretty easy and able to unwind in in the evening during the bedtime routine and they can kind of relax really quickly and go to bed. And there's other children, like it sounds like your son might be, and my daughter was like this and she's kind of grown out of it at almost five, but she was like this when she was two and three, that she needs 
tons of time to unwind in the evening. Um, and we tried everything and it was really just her temperament and it was more of a sensory issue for her. And so it really depends, but I would say just average for like older baby toddler age, an average bedtime routine is anywhere from like 15 to 30 minutes. Um, I will also wanted to add too that bed- bedtime routines do not have to include a bath. Like if that works for your family, that's great. But I will also say that a lot of children are very overstimulated by bath time. And so if you're experiencing that your child is getting really overstimulated and super active in the bath and it's kind of hyping them up, then you may want to consider moving bath time to a different part of the day. Just a suggestion. But bedtime routine should be something that everybody enjoys, is relaxing. And like you said, it does, it can create tension when you have these expectations going in. And then that is going to likely extend bedtime even longer because our children feed off of our emotions. And so if they can feel that we're stressed and tense, they're going to kind of cling to us more or, um, they're curious about that, where they might start to feel kind of this tension and they don't want us to leave now because they're they're stressed and they're like, what's going on, right? And it almost creates this negative association with bedtime. And so instead of being this relaxing time of safety and security and love, it can become this stressful negative thing. And Ultimately, our goal as parents when it comes to sleep, how we get about doing this will look different depending on the situation, but our ultimate goal should be to create an environment of safety and security and calm because that is going to help our children feel calm and safe enough to fall asleep and to stay asleep. Okay, so bedtime routine, 15 to 30 minutes or so, whatever works for your family. It can be a little bit longer. It can be a little bit less if you have like a younger baby. Not really not really a huge deal. Whatever works. Um, now, In terms of how long it should actually take a child to fall asleep, around 15 to 25 minutes is a good range. Anything less than 10 to 15 minutes, if your child, like as soon as you start rocking them to sleep or nursing them to sleep um, or whatever, if it's taking less than 10 minutes, that might be a sign that they're overtired. So that's one thing to think about. Now, if it's taking longer than 25 minutes or so, then there could be something else going on, whether it's an energy exertion issue, whether it's just they're not quite ready for bed and they're not quite tired enough. I don't know exactly what's going on with your son. Um, But the other thing that I would recommend here for these very, very active kiddos who just have tons of energy and they're bouncing off walls and maybe they're seeking some connection, it could be a combination of multiple things. But I would add in some rough and tumble play before dinner time if possible. Um, And then also adding in some heavy work in the bedtime routine. And what I mean by heavy work, it's called proprioceptive sensory input. And examples of that include um, animal crawls on the floor, deep pressure massage, bear squeezes, pushing and pulling carts with books, um, pushing and pulling beanbags or pillows or blankets, Things like that. If you think of using your your joints and your muscles to hold your body, so things like planks and push-ups, those are all proprioceptive activities. The reason that I recommend this right before bed is because proprioceptive sensory input is very calming and organizing to the nervous system. And so sometimes this is a kind of a sensory challenge. This is maybe a kiddo who hasn't had the right sensory input during the day, not for lack of trying, not for, you know, not not saying anything about parents. Some kids just need more. This is my daughter to a T. My daughter was, and she's kind of grown out of this a little bit, but she still has some of these issues. And she is the kind of child who is very, very brilliant, very highly sensitive. And it's usually these kiddos that have these sensory challenges, but she also needs a lot of sensory input. She needs to be bouncing off walls. She needs to be swinging. She needs to be spinning. She needs to be jumping. She needs to be upside down. And she needs lots of heavy work to help her calm her nervous system down. So I recommend this for almost fam- almost all families of toddlers if you are struggling with bedtime because it can't hurt. Um, it can only be helpful to add in some heavy work activities. Did I answer your full question? I feel like I speak yes, okay. yes. no, that makes So much sense to do. And I think that a lot of that has to do with just him not being ready for bed, having the energy. And it's funny because when you were saying that, I'm like, it's, so clear to, or it it just might not seem like a lot to us, but to them, it is a lot of work to do all that. And then it does like wear them out to the point where it's like, okay, I'm tired now. I need to take a break. I'm, I'm ready for bed. But would you recommend doing that before reading the book to then go to bed? 
Um, yeah, like, I mean, you do can you recommend reading a book for them to fall asleep, or do you recommend like? I guess like what I mean by that is reading until they just pass out or do you recommend reading, finishing a book and then saying, okay, nights out like, oh, or lights yeah, out. That was actually, that was the other part of that question that I did want to address and answer. Um, so, you know, talking about how many books do I read and, and setting limits, the really important part of having a bedtime routine, especially for toddlers or for very strong-willed children who struggle with boundaries, is making sure that you're very clear in your boundaries. And so one of the things that you can do that is really helpful for toddlers is to have a visual routine of some sort. And you can kind of Google like visual routines and get tons of, example of examples of what that might look like. Um, but it can be as simple as having like a piece of paper with drawings of each each task that you're going to do in the bedtime routine. So maybe it's bath, brush teeth, um, sing a song, read three books, and then rock to sleep or snuggle to sleep or lay down and go to sing to sleep, whatever works for your family. And so, yes, I do recommend, especially if you are having a hard time with the bedtime routine is having a set number of books that you're reading um, and being very specific in your bedtime routine and walking through it with your child, communicating it to your child every day, every night before bedtime, going through the routine together. And that visual routine will help them see the boundary instead of just hearing the boundary. And if another thing you can do is if you're if it's appropriate, developmentally appropriate for your child, is you can have them involved in creating the visual routine. And you can have them select like like if you're in the process of making the the visual routine, you can kind of say something like, hey, um, so-and-so, hey, Joey, we're going to kind of, you know, make this visual routine. I'm going to change a little bit, change the way we do bedtime. And then you can ask them, okay, how many books should we put on there to read before bed? And then if their number is reasonable, you can say that. If it's 20, you can say, okay, let's decide between two books or three books. So something like that. You can give them him choices um, to help him be more actively involved in the bedtime routine. But yes, I do recommend having a set number of books. Now, if you are reading to your child and reading to them until they fall asleep and that's working for you and you don't feel like it's taking an excessively long amount of time, then that's fine. But generally it does, it, it often does cause some problems in that the child kind of takes charge and takes the lead of the bedtime routine. And this just creates some relational dynamic issues. And then the other piece that you mentioned here was like wanting more connection. And so, yeah, I do always recommend when you're coming up with your bedtime routine, making sure that you add in lots of one-to-one -one connection time, that phones are put away, that TVs are turned off, and really connecting with your child and also not rushing through bedtime. So think of a routine come up with a, a routine and stick with it, but don't be rushing through it because just like our children can sense our emotions and our tension, they're also going to sense when we're trying to rush them through bedtime. And that's going to likely make them pull you a little closer and say, wait, don't leave one more book, one more book, because they haven't gotten their full one-to-one -one slow intentional routine with you, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And so when you mentioned like 15 to 30 minutes, no more than that, and you had mentioned like there's an active part of the routine and a non-active like what where does that lie so i would so i would say like fit just on, in, on average in general 15 to 30 minutes is like the length of the bedtime routine of the things that you're actually doing to prepare for bed so taking a bath brushing teeth praying singing reading books things like that and then um once once you've said okay good night it's time for bed and you've turned off the lights and you're no longer doing anything except for maybe you're nursing your child to sleep or rocking them to sleep or however you get them to sleep that is when that next step kind of comes in is how long is it actually taking them to fall asleep once they start trying to fall asleep. And that would be that 15 to 25 minutes is a pretty ideal time to actually fall asleep from start to finish. So that would put the bedtime routine at about like total from start to finish at about what was, what would that be? Like 30 minutes to uh, an hour. Yeah. 50 minutes to an hour. But again, these are just averages and guidelines. Yeah. No, but I think it's good to just have an idea um, so that you kind of have a baseline of, okay, maybe this isn't working because it's just like way off, right. you know, or um, like for me, I just kind of didn't even think to ask that question. And then I remember someone telling me, yeah, it takes me on average this long from start to finish. And I was like, now I know maybe, uh, but then a, a night, a few nights later, 
I felt like it was taking hours to get my son to sleep. And I was like, you know, that wasn't that long. It was like 50 minutes, but in my head, it was like forever. And so that's why I think that sometimes having an idea of it and then really like checking the clock and realizing, you know, maybe it was just like an emotional journey for me internally. And it was just so tense because of my expectations, all this, but really that was normal. Right. You know, right. And just it's taxing because it's, there's a lot of energy that goes into it and you want to be present and all that. And so, yeah, I think that, or maybe you're tired, you know, I'm obviously tired because I'm trying to get like nurse her and then get him to sleep and whatever. But my son or my husband is really involved too. But I think that when you have an idea of this makes sense, or this is just like, like this, because today we had a day like this or whatever, it's nice to kind of have an idea, but then tap back in and be like, okay, this, this is just my son's personality. This is my son's temperament. This makes more sense for my child than someone else's. I think it's so nice to kind of hear all of the different methods and recommendations. Right. So I really appreciate that for my son, for sure. He, um, you know, you mentioned something about kids having specific like sensory issues might come up or that might be a trigger for, some, you know, staying up late. And I think for him, it's not necessarily sensory, but like kind of where he's using books really as a way to, I mean, I'm sure most kids do, but he really uses books as his form of entertainment because we don't have any television or time at all because we don't have a TV in our house. So we do no screen time at all. So books are his way. And so he loves books and loves going into them. So they really stimulate him actually. And they don't like, he actually doesn't fall asleep from them. So you really have to read him a lot to stay up really late to get him to sleep. But um, it's almost like getting a kid to, or like putting a kid in front of a TV until they pass out. It's like, that's going to take a really long time you know, Mm -hmm. you know, so we don't do that. So I think that really what it comes down to is like having that stimulation outside of that. So that that's not, and I like the idea of having something different than, because in my head, I'm like, oh, reading a book to sleep, that's great. And that's our routine. But I do think that because for him specifically doesn't work, then having, you know, other options, like my husband will just turn the lights off and um, make up a story Mm -hmm. or, um, sing to him. And I, and I do find that that's, I mean, he'll, you know, sometimes not want that, but I do think that that is probably sometimes more effective because then it's, um, you know, lights are out too, right. Uh, talking about sensory, like we need lights on in order to read because you need to see what you're reading. So that helps as well. Right. Yeah. But I love that you came into this space from your own experience with your kids and you are looking at it holistically, whereas most people are just kind of like most sleep specialists are saying, okay, it's very type A, you know, when it comes back to is this is what they need to do in order to fall in line with our life. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, that's not the point really of having kids. Yes, they come along with our lives and our journeys and they're part of it, but they also have their own needs and we want to be there for them. And that's part of our journey and how we learn too. So right. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. And I think, you know, I also wanted to say at the root of this and, and one of the major reasons that I really don't advocate for sleep training is in non-responsive sleep training is because at the root of it, these step-by-step arbitrary rules um, and approaches where we are essentially training our child or trying to train our child not to signal to us, if there is an actual sleep issue, it doesn't address the sleep issue. If there is an oral tie issue, it doesn't address the oral tie issue. If there is a food sensitivity, it's not doing anything for the food sensitivity. Your child's still uncomfortable and still has that medical issue, but now they might just not be responding to you enough or as much. If there is a, a scheduling issue, again, it doesn't address the scheduling issue. And so there are so many, if it's, if it's an activity issue, behave, the, the same is true for any of these factors that have the potential to impact sleep. And I think what so many parents don't understand because they're just sold this myth and this idea of sleep training um, is it's not actually teaching your child to sleep. It's just really masking the symptom. It's masking the symptom by trying to stop the crying and the, and the signaling. Yeah, it makes so much sense. And and it's basically teaching them their emotions. I mean, in my head, this is how I feel that they don't matter. 
you know, right. and that what their needs don't matter and that they just need to like get over it basically. And yeah, so it's interesting how it may seem like it's, it's like taking an antibiotic for a recurring, you know, infection mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, topical, internal, whatever it is, it's like, it's not caught co- or it's not solving the root problem. And so it is amazing to work with someone like you. And do you have a platform where you share a lot of this information online or is it specifically one-on-one work? Like how can people connect with you? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yes. So I am mostly on Instagram. My handle is Taylor Kulik and that's where I share a lot of my information. And I do like, I do weekly Q and A's and my stories and answer questions. Um, also get on my email list. I have a couple of freebies that you can sign up Um, to get through my email list. And then I send out like two monthly emails where I answer questions more in depth and things like that. But then in terms of like individualized support, I actually don't offer one-to-one support anymore, but I do have an amazing teammate named Jen who supports sleep in the kind of the same type of way that I do. And she's wonderful. So she does offer one-to-one support through my website. You can work, you can just have like a 30-minute call or a 60-minute call, or she also offers more comprehensive support packages. And then I also have comprehensive e-courses. I have an infant sleep e-course for zero to 12 months. Um, and then I have in a toddler e-course for 12 months and up. And then I also offer a, like rotating monthly webinars. So I usually do two webinars a month and I do them on rotating topics. Um, so like, for example, the two most popular topics that I do every other month, each of them are night weaning and transitioning to a crib or to a floor bed, because those are like we talked about earlier, two really, really big transitions that parents really struggle with and want support with. And so that is another way to kind of get to see me face to face, but in a more group learning kind of setting. And so that is, yeah, that's where you can find me. My website is taylorkulik.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Taylor, for joining us and for giving me a one-on-one, basically. (laughs) I love talking to you and I hope that people can find you and use you as a resource. And I appreciate you sharing so much with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. 